Good evening. You are tuned in to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. If you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on cgsw.com. This episode of Writer's Block features interviews with two authors, Anthony Baduka and Paul Zizka. If you know someone that would love to get involved with our show, give us a line at cgsw.writers at gmail.com. Without further ado, let's get started. Coming up first is our interview with Jenny Kwong and Anthony Baduka. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Today, I'm speaking to Anthony Baduka about his book, Going to Beautiful. So welcome, Anthony. Thanks, Jenny. Happy to be here with you. All right. And so uh, what started you on this journey of writing this book? Yeah, well, that's a big question, actually. It, uh, a good part of this book was written during the pandemic. And, you know, one of the things that I was, you know, getting from that whole experience as we were all going through it was just this collective sense of loss that we were all feeling. You know, some of us was, you know, loss of spending time with each other, loss of uh, careers, loss of uh, life in some cases. And I I really was feeling this really strongly. And I thought, you know, I don't think I want to write about the pandemic. I'm sure many people will do that and probably much better than I could. But I did want to write about loss. And yet, only as a starting point. I wanted to write a book that, you know, had this big loss at the beginning and then to just investigate how this uh, influenced the characters and how they made their way through it to an eventual place of joy. And, and, And I think, you know, partially I was hoping that when the book came out it would be a bit of a tonic for readers and writing it was a bit of a tonic for me as well. And how so? Well, I think in the process of writing about loss and grief, which our main character goes through, and then trying to find ways for him to navigate it and to find hope again and to find joy and in a place that you know he didn't expect to find it, was was good for me and just to send myself that message, you know, as I was going through the pandemic with everyone else and and hopefully send the readers the message that there is always hope and the world can be friendly and there can be joy after great loss. And you have your main character, Jake, who is the narrator of the story? Yes, so the main character is Jake Hardy, and he is uh, married to a man named Eddie Kravitz. And they have, I think, you know, what a lot of people might think of as a golden life. They have very successful careers. They have a lot of friends. They have a lot of fans because both of them came up through reality TV in Canada. Um, Jake as a celebrity chef and Eddie as a fashion designer. And they've got a, a great dog and they've got a, a son and everything is is wonderful uh, until it isn't. And so I, I don't think I'm giving away 
too much because most of this happens very early in the book where that life unravels and there is a tragedy and Jake needs to find a way to recover from it and he thinks he knows how he's going to do it and he you know goes to you know travels to places that he loves and you know surrounds himself with his 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 friends but none of that seems to work and eventually he finds his way through a bit of maybe misdirection or misadventure to a small little town in Saskatchewan which is a place he'd never been had never even heard of and while Jake is there with his best friend Baz, they discover a life and a way of living that they are wholly unprepared for. They, you know, they're used to their big, exciting, you know, bright big city lights life in Toronto, and small town Saskatchewan is very different. And I think the other thing I enjoyed writing about was having these two, you know, kind of fish out of water characters be placed in an environment that they suspect they won't understand, they suspect they're not going to like, they suspect that there's nothing there for them, and to have all of that turned upside down. So what was it like to com- create this community of beautiful to slowly construct it? Well, you know, uh, Jenny, beautiful is a little town that is actually based quite closely on the small little prairie town where I grew up. And, you know, it's one of the things that I really enjoyed doing as a writer. And when I look back at my body of work, I've done it a lot where I, you know, my reason for writing is that I want to tell stories about underrepresented people and underrepresented places. And writing about Saskatchewan and oftentimes small town Saskatchewan in the Canadian mystery genre is is important for me because it's it's not represented a great deal in the genre. So I, I like that type of setting, and, and part of it absolutely is because I know it so well. So this small town is populated with a great many different characters, and I know these people. I've met these people. I grew up with these people, and I think it was another part of my joy in writing this book was just to give some of those people room on the pages of a Canadian mystery. And, you know, I think of of all the things that I've heard from readers since Going to Beautiful has come out is is that same sentiment where people will say like, oh, you know, I, I've, I've been to a, a restaurant like that, or I've, you know, that nun is someone who taught me in grade two, or, or the, you know, the, the women who, who have coffee every day at the Chinese restaurant, you know, they say, I know those women. And it's this real sense of, uh, this shared experience with characters that even though we don't see them a lot in mystery genre uh, material, particularly in Canada, uh, I think it's very familiar to people. And so what was it like to tell this family story and make it a mystery? Like it slowly unravels. It's like a, a more like a cozy mystery than like a thriller. It was very difficult for us to categorize going to beautiful and to put it in a box and, and, I think when you know my publisher and I talked about it as as the book was coming out, you know we kind of wondered like what kind of mystery is this because it's you know it's not a thriller it's 
it's not really a cozy either because there's you know a lot of things about cozies that this book doesn't fit into that box and and I think once we kind of released ourselves from thinking that it's got to be in a particular box it was easier for us to go out and and talk to people about what it was I think you know for me as a writer and I know this now that I've been at this for 20 years I'm mostly known for writing mysteries and and a little bit of of thriller material my love is to write characters and places and I think again when I look back at the books that I've I've published that's a very common thing for me to focus on and I know as I'm in the process of writing a book and I I'm going through it right now as I'm writing my next one is that I I want so much to talk about characters and develop characters and to develop atmosphere and a sense of place but I I do have to control myself in a way because I also want to to tell a story that fits in the mystery genre and that's that's very important and it's something that I feel I owe my readers because if you go too much to one side, either too much to the mystery or too much to the character development, you'll lose things. So it's one of the things that I've practiced a lot over the years, and hopefully I'm getting better at it, finding that balance. So with Going to Beautiful, even though the overriding desire for me was to tell this story of seeking and finding joy, there's also murders that happen in this book, and there's, there's three main murders, and what I did with with those is that it's not the typical whodunit structure that you will find in a mystery novel. These three murders take place in different decades. The circumstances of the murder are very different where, you know, you have one murder that, you know, was committed either because it was, you know, uh, self-defense or maybe it was part vengeance or was it rage? And then there's a second murder that was created purely for greed. And then a third murder that may have been an accident or was it committed because of jealousy. And then when you look at who committed the murder and, and who the murder victims were, they're quite different too. And that's what I wanted to play with in this book, not so much in let's discover how we're going to uncover the murderer, but let's just look at the, the basics of three very different types of murder, how they can happen, and then hopefully get the reader thinking about why there were such differences and how those murders were committed and how they were treated and how you think about them as a reader based on when they were committed, like what time period, and who committed them. And I think in some cases, it is sometimes surprising, again, when I've heard from readers where sympathies will lie, and sometimes it's with uh, with the murderer, uh, which is it's a interesting thing to to investigate. And so you said you're working on a new book. Uh, what is that about? Yes, well, actually, I've got a brand new book called Living Sky, which is coming out on June one. And this Jenny is actually my return to writing a series. Um, I'm most known for my Russell Quant mystery series. And I've been writing mostly standalones since that point. Um, Living Sky will be book one in the Mary Bell mystery series. And it, the story there basically is that Mary Bell is someone who has escaped Saskatchewan. Again, <laughs> writing about Saskatchewan. Uh, she's moved to Vancouver. And while this character was there, you know, she... Uh, understands that she's a transgender woman and goes through the process of 
of the transition from male to female at the same time you know, enters into a career as a private eye. For various reasons, she is kind of forced to go back home to Saskatchewan and to try and rebuild her life and start over. So Living Sky is about her return to uh, living in a city in Saskatchewan, trying to run her own PI firm, uh, and dealing with uh, a number of secrets in her past. So that book comes out on June 1, and uh, as you and I are talking today, today I was working on uh, book number two, which will come out uh, the spring of 24. And so um, I guess uh, this is about the end of the interview. Anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Yes, well, thanks for that, uh, Jenny. I, I think with Going to Beautiful, the main message that I really hope people get to it or from it is that no matter how dark life can seem, no matter what sort of tragedies you might have, that, that there is hope out there, that there is joy out there to be found. It just might not be where you expect it to be. So thank you, Jenny. I really appreciate uh, spending this time with you. Yeah, thank you very much, Anthony, and we'll hopefully be able to talk to you again sometime. Yeah. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. That was my interview with Anthony Baduka, talking about his mystery novel, Going to Beautiful, from Stonehouse Publishing. After my interview with Anthony, it was announced on March 24th, 2023, that he is a finalist in the fiction category for the Saskatchewan Book Awards for the book we talked about in this interview, Going to Beautiful. For those who just tuned in, you are tuned into an episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of the month every month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Coming up next, we have my interview with Paul Ziska. Stay tuned. Good evening, everyone. You are listening to CJSW's monthly foray into the world of Canadian literature and publishing. This is Maddie Robinson interviewing Paul Ziska about his new book, Spirits in the Sky, with Rocky Mountain Books. Uh, hi, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm really good, Maddie. How are you? I am doing uh, excellent this evening. Thank you so much for the opportunity for an interview. On Writer's Block, we typically like to interview kind of more literary work, but I think that a picture can say a thousand words, and I know that you are a photographer and there is still some writing in your book. Um, so I wanted to reach out to you and talk to you about your new photography book today. Um, first off, I wanted to ask, what, what inspired you to publish a book of all your Aurora photography? I felt like I had enough material to present it to the world. You know, I think as a photographer, it's always exciting to, to have a way to present a cohesive body of work to an audience. And at the same time, you could always keep shooting for any given book, right? It's hard to draw the line and determine, okay, when do I have enough material that uh, it's worth putting a book out there? It's not going to feel like a stretch. It's going to feel like a really, really strong body of work that I can present to people. So I've always felt very passionate about the phenomenon of the Northern Lights. I think it's one of the most exhilarating, beautiful subjects that one can ever hope to witness or photograph. And it was clear from day one, um, when I started photography, photographing in Northern Lights, I wanted to bring that to the world eventually in one way or another. Of course, 
social media is great and the online world is great, but there's nothing quite like seeing a cohesive body of work all about one subject in print. And so um, I felt like, yeah, about two years ago, I felt like I had enough material for a book and I reached out to the publisher and Rocky Mountain Books were on board and uh, we went from there and the, the result I think is wonderful. I think like after I was looking at the photos, I really, really wanted to travel and go see them. So I think you accomplished your goal, your goal quite well. Um, <laughs> um, this book is really cool too, because I was looking through it and they're not just all photos of the sky. Like some are framed with mountains, some are kind of framed with trees, some are kind of more long exposure shots. I don't know too much about photography, but I really liked how you played around with them. One right at the end even has a photo kind of on your back porch with your daughter watching the Northern Lights, which I thought was very, very sweet. I definitely, yeah, I definitely saw the variance in all the different photos. And I think I think it was a wonderful collection. Um, I did want to ask, speaking of social media, I actually follow a lot of Aurora photography blogs, like on, on Facebook and on Instagram and Tumblr, because I think they're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, um, a lot of people claim that nighttime photography is often kind of oversaturated or edited after to kind of like heighten the colors. Um, I was wondering if you ever need to do that or if you actually if you're good enough with photography that at the moment you can capture the colors on your camera like do you ever have to edit them after to kind of touch them up or are they just raw photos that's a really good question i think one thing that's important to understand when you do any kind of nighttime photography is that you're, you're forced to suspend the idea of the idea that you should render and present a scene as you saw it when you were out there you're working in very dark conditions and if you were to show people what it looked like to the naked eye, you would show them black photos over and over again. So <laughs> right away, when you do nighttime photography, you're forced to basically give up on the idea that you're going to show the scene as you saw it. You have to accept that your eyes, your, your human eyes are too limited to pick up on all that beauty. And instead, we rely on the technology, which has evolved amazingly well and now allows us to reveal a lot of the beauty that is there in the night sky, it's just we can't see it with our limited human eyesight. And so right away, I think it's important for people to understand that we're, we're not necessarily making things up. We're just relying on technology to reveal the beauty that is unseen. And then we're also typically working with raw files as photographers. So typically when I shoot at night, uh, I have my saturation, contrast, all those settings set at zero, and then I adjust them after the fact. Because I'm relying on the camera to show me what's there, it's hard to figure out where to stop when you move the sliders around, you know, and, and I think you have some photographers who are a little bit more liberal with how much <laughs> saturation they'll go with. Correct. And you have <laughs> photographers who just, photographers who like to tone it down a little bit and keep the sliders in check. And I think we all evolve as photographers. I recall the days where I would crank the, satur the saturation pretty high. And now I feel like I've sort of brought things back to more, I suppose, you know, um, more subdued changes that I make to the images. But all, all that to say, uh, the nighttime photography, especially when you shoot in the raw format, it's expected that you're going to do some amount of editing. And then it's it, then after that, it's, in an, it's a whole spectrum in terms of how much, how far you're going to push the sliders. But I would say in our part of the world, Aurora images rarely look like anything that you saw in the field to the naked eye. Now, if you go to the high latitudes, occasionally you'll get big displays and you can tell comp people with confidence this is exactly what it looked like it looked it's one of those instances where it looked like the photos but at our latitude 
you know, Banff, Calgary, it's pretty rare. That makes sense. I mean, I think you want to capture the, the spirit of the lights. And it's almost like any emotion portrayed in any form of art, you kind of want to like push that emotion forward or, or push that sensation or the color or whatever it is forward. Because if you're there in real life, you're going to experience it. But if you, like you said, if you look at a blank page and it's a really dark sky, <laughs> you're not going to really get the same feeling. So I know it's about kind of emphasizing, I guess, like emphasizing the experience or emphasizing the visuals because people who are not there can't really understand like what it really looks like because they move as well, right? They do move. And that's a good point. You know, it's about you, you want to perhaps share the, the array of colors with the audience. But what's amazing about the aurora is that it, it just keeps presenting itself in different ways. And the motion is always slightly different. And so that's something else that, you know, that you can capture with the camera that, you know, there, there, there's, there's less arguing about the motion that you showcase in your image than there is about the colors, you know, and, and then some people like cooler tones, like bluer lights, other people like yellower green lights. It, it's, it's a matter of, I think it's a matter of taste really, because we're all, it's hard to argue about something that nobody can really see with the naked eye. Yes, for sure. And I, I yeah. and I think a lot of it probably is too. people also know that it really does depend on your lighting. I mean, I bought a, a really old like I think it's a 1981 one step from someone's basement, like a Polaroid camera. And I didn't realize how because you have to mess with kind of the, the lighting setting on it. Otherwise, like it's a really basic little slider, but otherwise it comes out oversaturated. Of course, I know nothing about photography. I was just messing around with this camera. And I was like, oh, yeah, these these definitely don't even with just a basic Polaroid, it doesn't always look exactly as it would in person, but it does have a very cool effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And it's been shown even that different people, depending on age, as one of many other factors, different people will pick up different colors to the next. So someone might, yeah, so someone might come out, you know, the next day and say, oh, I totally saw some purple and reds to the naked eye. Whereas the majority of the population will say, no, there wasn't any red or purple. So there's arguing even around that. So, so you know, in a way, in a way, there's no, it, it's kind of, um, I, I think people spend way too much time arguing about how believable a photo is or not, given that even to the naked eye, two different people might perceive colors differently, regardless of the whole photography side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I once went meteor, like meteor shower watching with a friend of mine. And it was really funny because I kept catching the meteors because I was quite quick, but he caught none of them. So again, <laughs> really depends on kind of your eyes, I think, with the night sky as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, the next question actually is kind of related to the colors. So I found it so interesting. You mentioned that um, to actually take photos of the nighttime sky and auroras, it's actually good to have some basic scientific understanding. So you know, kind of what you're taking photographs of. Um, you do mention that the reason the northern lights are, are green is because the color of the lights actually depends on what gases are in the air. And so green is oxygen, whereas the reds and the purples are like nitrogen and, other, and helium and other gases. I thought that was really cool. I actually didn't know that why they were different colors. I never thought of looking into that. So that's, that's really interesting, I guess. <laughs> it, it's really cool. I think re regardless, I think when you're passionate about photographing something, um, sooner or later, you start to wonder about, well, how, how does that thing even happen? Why is that thing even you know, occurring yeah. in front of me. And so it's interesting to learn about the science, but uh, I think the Aurora has tons of little bits of science like that behind it. They're um, really, really fascinating. And a lot of that science is new. 
is, is fairly recent. Um, you know, it's it, the accuracy with which we're able to predict Aurora events now compared to when I started even, you know, 12, 15 years ago when I started shooting the Aurora. I mean, we would spend a lot more time driving around and staying up late for nothing than we do now. <laughs> the, the, um, the science has gotten way better, whether it's, you know, trying to determine what, why we get certain colors or whether the Aurora is going to show up at all. Yeah, well, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I've tried to go like Aurora seeking and I find that it's very hit or miss. Like I <laughs> last year, actually, because I know that it seems like we're getting a lot more solar activity lately, at least I've noticed. Maybe that's just me because I'm on the lookout. But um, me and my my friends, we went out <laughs> to try and see the Aurora and it was it was a total bust. It was really funny. Actually, we stayed up super late. We got McDonald's. I mean, I got some some great spicy chicken McNuggets, but there was there was no <laughs> Aurora. <laughs> so it was it was fun, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I guess for you, even this probably hit or miss, right? Like you never know for certain if they're coming out. It is. And even if you're, you know, somewhat educated about the science and you try and you get better at making the right guess there's still always going to be, I think, some amount of uncertainty, which does keep things really exciting. I think if you, if it was a sure bet every time and you knew, you know, you had a clear yes or no, the lights are going to show or not. I don't know. It wouldn't be, you know, the thrill of the chase, I think would be gone. And the images I don't think would mean nearly as much. So I kind of like that despite the advances in Aurora science, there's still a lot of uncertainty and a lot of experts miss the mark on a regular basis still. Speaking, speaking of, I guess, framing shots, I, I know in the book that you mentioned that Aurora photography uh, requires kind of a complex blend of, you know, scientific understanding, technical expertise, creativity, patience, and a dose of sheer luck. I think that's kind of funny because a lot of people say the same of, of writing creative fiction or publishing is that you need all these things, but at the end of the day, you also kind of need a little bit of luck. Um, so I thought mm-hmm. I'd ask you, how much do you think luck has kind of played into your photography career? Like, was it, do you think there's a lot of lucky breaks you got, or do you think it's only sometimes luck with the Aurora? I, I would say looking at the career as a whole, there's no, there's no question that I got the odd lucky break and I ended up at the right place at the right time. I mean, I, I should mention, I've been doing photography full-time for about 12 years now mm-hmm. and there's nothing else I'd rather do. I'm very thankful that I get to do photography mm-hmm. for a living, but at the same and and I worked, you know, I worked really hard, of course, but there's no question that looking back, especially with hindsight, there's some, there's the odd thing that the odd moment that happened that, you know, you look back on and you, you, you really realize that you were in the right place at the right time or met the right person, et cetera, to team up with. And so I got, um, yeah, I was fortunate for sure over the course of my career. And then in terms of the Aurora, I think, I think the, the luck plays less and less of a role as the science gets better, as I get better as an observer and at understanding the phenomenon and understanding light and, and photography in general, it plays less and less of a role, I think it's fair to say. But really, I think it's always going to be one of the ingredients in, the, in that whole equation. I mean, there's times where you, you just decide to bail on a location and drive 15 minutes to another spot. And that's when the big, sh- that's when the Aurora just picks up yeah, like crazy yeah. and you're in the car and there's nothing to shoot. Oh. And I would, you know, I'd say <laughs> yeah. that's probably a good example of, you know, bad luck. No, even if you, you, you're out there, you're putting in the work, you're dedicated, you, you saw the event coming. There's, there's like, you, you can't see things coming on such a, you know, short notice time scale yeah. right like you know that there's going to be some aurora action this evening but you know you can't 
you can tell what's going to happen down to the minute. So that's one example of when, you know, sometimes you don't, you're not very lucky. And sometimes, well, as soon as you feel like you're a little bit behind schedule and as soon as you get to your location, it's like the Aurora waits for you. And as soon as you get there, it just explodes just as you've set up your composition. Well, well, thank you so much for answering a lot of my questions. I don't know if, if you had anything you wanted to mention as well or any questions of yourself. Not really. I, I just I would highly encourage people if you've never seen uh, if you've never seen the Aurora for yourself. I mean, it's one thing to see the Aurora in print, and that's you know in a way for is that's that's as close as I can get people to the Aurora is publish this cohesive collection of my favorite Aurora moments out there. But you know, especially as the world is reopening and things are looking looking up with um, you know everything that's happened over the last couple of years. Just make some time in your make some time in your schedule to go chase the aurora locally, depending on where you live. And if you live in a non-aurora location, plan that trip up to Yellowknife or somewhere. Whether you're five or fifty-five or a hundred years old, it's something that will stay with you forever. If you can witness a big show in person, it's something that is really, really special. And I would highly encourage people pursue that in the short term if they can. It's definitely a bucket list thing for me. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think this will conclude our interview for today. Um, And thank you everyone for listening. It was a pleasure, Maddie. Thank you. For those who just tuned in, you have been listening to an episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of the month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. If you missed this full episode live, you can always check it out again on cgsw.com. This episode of Writer's Block featured work by Anthony Baduka as well as Paul Ziska. Make sure to tune in next month from 8 to 8.30pm for another episode of Writer's Block. Have a great night!